Welcome, everybody. Great to be with you again today at this Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Hilo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, 11 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time, and our next call will be on Wednesday, August 19th. We typically give you the title of that uh, article uh, for the next month, but uh, the article is currently embargoed and the name cannot yet be released, so please pay attention to um, the materials that IHI sends out to those who have signed up for calls in the past and or to your uh, JAMA uh, journal uh, as it is uh, listed in uh, JAMA as to which uh, article will be used in the upcoming Author of the Room calls. So please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of the learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Charles Morin. First, are the art, first author of the article, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Singly and Combined with Medication for Persistent Insomnia, a Randomized Control uh, uh, Trial. Uh, Dr. Morin is a professor of psychology and director of the Sleep Research Center, University of Laval, uh, Quebec City, Canada, and he currently holds a Canadian Research Chair on Sleep Disorders and is past president of the Canadian Sleep Society. Dr. Morin's main interests are in the epidemiology and treatment of insomnia with special expertise in the development and validation of cognitive, behavioral, and combined psychological and pharmacological approaches for treating insomnia. Dr. Morin is associate editor for the journal Sleep and Behavioral Sleep Medicine and is on the editorial boards of several other journals. He's published four books and many, many articles and chapters on the topic of insomnia. Welcome, Dr. Morin. Thank you, Dr. Callum. Uh, as a moderator, it's my job to help focus the discussion on the application of Dr. Morin's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. Once again, Author in the Room is established for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Today, Dr. Morin and I will help you translate what's in today's practice into changes applicable in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Morin will spend a few minutes, about approximately 10, summarizing the findings of this article. And then I'll take just a few minutes to summarize after that, and then we'll move to your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls, both your experience uh, from things that you have already have in place from improving care uh, in, uh, around uh, this particular issue, insomnia in this case, and uh, your questions. So please uh, be prepared uh, to contribute uh, to things that you might have done already in your practice or in your organization to improve the management of insomnia. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps that you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. There are approximately 50 uh, lines, phone lines connected to the call right now with several individuals participating per line. Some individuals may be on the call uh, on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and GMO websites as streaming audio files. Uh, complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org 
and prior author of the room calls are also available on those sites. So let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Morin, who will provide an overview of the article. Dr. Morin. Yes, thank you, Dr. Carlo, for this nice introduction, and I want to thank JAMA also and the Institute of Healthcare Improvements for giving me this opportunity to share these uh, and discuss these findings uh, with uh, practicing clinicians. I think it's a great opportunity to talk about this topic, uh, insomnia. And before I talk specifically about uh, the JAMA paper and the main findings, I want to to introduce the topic of insomnia because uh, insomnia is not just a problem uh, with falling asleep. Uh, It can manifest itself in several manners. Uh, So some people have trouble falling asleep initially at bedtime but then sleep through the night. Other people fall asleep easily but then wake up in the middle of the night and have trouble going back to sleep. And then another form of insomnia is what we call early morning awakening. So these are people who wake up uh, too early in the morning and just can't get back to sleep. Uh, And finally, one other feature of insomnia is what we call non-restorative sleep. Uh, It's not as well defined as the sleep onset or sleep maintenance difficulties, but typically this refers to people waking up in the morning and not feeling refreshed uh, despite having the perception of having had an adequate sleep duration. So in clinical practice, uh, we tend to see mostly people with mixed sleep onset and maintenance insomnia. And uh, we have to keep in mind also that these problems occur despite having adequate opportunity to sleep. So insomnia and sleep deprivation is not the same. And insomnia is uh, is not just a nighttime problem, it's a 24-hour problem because to make the diagnosis of insomnia, there must be some evidence of uh, either distress uh, or impairment in daytime functioning associated with the nocturnal insomnia symptoms. And typically, people with uh, significant insomnia will report uh, daytime fatigue, lack of energy, cognitive impairments, like they have poor attention, uh, problems with memory, with concentration, and oftentimes it's associated with mood disturbances, uh, particularly with chronic insomnia. Insomnia is also a very prevalent condition, and the actual uh, prevalence estimates vary a great deal as a function of the definition we use. Uh, but we estimate that approximately a third of the adult, adult population report some insomnia symptoms. And then if we ask the additional question about daytime impairments, this is decreased about 10 to 15 percent. And if we are referring specifically to people who suffer from an insomnia disorder, that is problem sleeping at night, daytime impairments, and the problem lasts for more than one month, then it's about 10% of the adult population who suffer from a chronic insomnia disorder. So that's quite a prevalent condition. It's more prevalent in women than in men. The ratio is about 2 to 1. It's more prevalent in older adults also more prevalent uh, in patients uh, with medical or psychiatric condition and in shift workers. Uh, 
uh, in terms of its course, we tend to uh, to think of insomnia as often being a situational uh, punctual problems, uh, but there's increasing evidence showing now that it can also be a very persistent uh, problem. And actually, a, a paper our group published in the Archives of Internal Medicine earlier this year showed that uh, for three-quarters of the sample we surveyed at baseline uh, these people continue having insomnia for up to three years uh, after the initial assessment. So it's a very persistent condition in many, many people. Uh, so this means that we should not assume that when a patient is presenting with an insomnia complaint that the complaint will go away on its own. And typically, it will persist over time. And persistent insomnia is associated also with uh, with the psychiatric disorders. So chronic insomnia is a risk factor for major depression and for anxiety disorders as well. The risk to develop major depression is almost four times as high in people who have insomnia over a two-year period compared to those whose insomnia will remit during that time period. So it's important to pay attention and to treat it. Now, if we move to the treatment options, and that's just a couple of words here before we get to the actual uh, study findings, uh, there are tr at least three uh, treatment options for insomnia. And the first one, of course, is the pharmacological one. There are different classes of medications, benzodiazepine receptor agonist, melatonin receptor agonist like ramelton, antidepressants, uh, typically use of label, and antihistamines. Uh, then the second second class of treatment is what we call cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's one of the conditions that was compared in this study we'll discuss today. And the final class is the, what we call the complementary and alternative medicines, so that's herbal and dietary supplements. Um, in 2005, there was a very important uh, state of the science uh, conference held at NIH in Bethesda, and the panel of experts there came up to the conclusion that only two treatment modalities uh, had enough evidence uh, to to be recommended for the clinical management of insomnia. And these two treatments were cognitive behavioral therapy and the FDA-approved benzodiazepine receptor agonist, at least for short-term use. And the panel concluded that there was not enough evidence to endorse treating insomnia with antihistamines, antidepressants, even less with antipsychotics or complementary and alternative preparations. So if we focus for a minute on those two main treatment modalities, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT in short, and medication, each of these two treatment modalities have their own advantages and limitations. For instance, CBT and medication works very well in the short-term management of insomnia. Medication typically produces rapid sleep improvements, but there's more limited evidence of long-term efficacy. And CBT may take longer to improve sleep, but sleep changes are typically well-sustained over sleep. Now, there are a number of good reasons to think that if we combine those two treatment modalities, because they're not incompatible with one another, 
if we combine them, maybe we would get the best of both worlds. Uh, that that is, the short-term benefits uh, coming from the medication and the longer-term benefits from CBT. So. This was, in a way, the goal of this study. We wanted to see first if uh, combining CBT plus medication is more effective than CBT alone for acute treatment of insomnia. Because when we take these two alone, these two treatment modalities singly, I mean, they don't work for everyone. They work in general, but uh, there's no single therapy currently available that works for every patient with insomnia. So this was the first question. And the second question had to do with maintenance uh, therapy. We know that insomnia is often a chronic condition, but most of the treatments that are tested uh, are tested for a very short period of time, a few a few nights or a few weeks, but oftentimes we see these patients who have had a very long-standing history of insomnia. So the question here was, does maintenance therapy, whether it's in the, in the form of individualized CBT or long-term intermittent use of medication, whether this would enhance a long-term outcome? So the study design involved two Two treatment phase. There was an acute treatment phase with two conditions uh, where we compared CBT alone uh, versus CBT plus medication. And here we used Zolpidem medication, 10 milligram uh, used 30 minutes uh, prior to bedtime. So the first treatment phase lasted six weeks. And then after six weeks, uh, patients were re-randomized to a second uh, level of treatment. Initially, we had two conditions, and for the extended phase, we had four conditions. So those who received CBT alone initially were re-randomized to continue with CBT, but during the extended phase, uh, they had a monthly uh, psychotherapy session, individual therapy session, uh, whereas during the first six weeks, it was in group, and it was more generic type of CBT. So that was the first condition. The second condition, we had no additional treatment. So here we wanted to see whether the added six-month therapy, CBT, had additional uh, values compared to no more treatment. And perhaps more interestingly, those who received the combined therapy initially during the first six weeks of treatment, uh, then these people were re-randomized to two conditions. Uh, All patients continued with CBT, but half of them uh, also continued with medication, but instead of using it every night, as in the first six weeks of therapy, they were given 10 pills for each month, and they were told to use it only as needed. And the other group, they continue with CBT alone, and they were tapered off their medication. So here we were really interested in seeing whether after initial combined therapy, whether it was best to continue with both CBT and medication intermittently or CBT alone. And then we had an additional six months follow-up. So that was sort of a a complex design, but addressing very specific research questions. The sample of patients we recruited for this study, uh, we had uh, 160 patients, uh, 97 uh, women, so about 60% of the sample. Uh, 
the average age was 50, and the range went from 30 to 72 years old. Uh, these were fairly well-educated patients uh, with chronic insomnia. Average duration of insomnia was 16 years, uh, and most People, uh, actually three-quarters of the sample, presented with mixed sleep onset and sleep maintenance uh, difficulties. Uh, the main diagnosis was primary insomnia, but 58% uh, of the sample had at least one comorbid medical condition, most typically a cardiovascular condition such as hypertension. And in 15% of the patients, there was also a comorbid psychiatric condition, most typically an anxiety disorder or a depressive condition, a depression condition like dysthymia. There were a number of outcome measures, uh, but the main uh, one that we focused on in this uh, JAMA paper were sleep measures derived from a daily sleep diaries kept by the patient and also polysomnographic data derived from sleep lab evaluation before and after treatment and also what we would call a measurement-based care, the insomnia severity index, which is a brief seven-item scale assessing severity of the insomnia complaints, interference with daytime functioning, dissatisfaction with sleep, and concern or worries about, uh, about the sleep problem. These measures were administered at baseline after the first phase of treatment, after the second uh, six-month phase of treatment, and then at the six-month uh, follow-up. Uh, the main uh, results now, um, so if we could focus first on the sleep diary measures, and we look at sleep continuity. So typically we define insomnia by the time it takes to fall asleep, the time a person spends awake in the middle of the night, total sleep time and sleep efficiency. I'm going to focus for the time being on one key variable, which is the amount of time spent awake in the middle of the night. That is, after initiating sleep, how much time is spent awake during the rest of the night. And on average here, people were spending more than two hours awake after first initiating sleep at baseline, and this was decreased to about 45 minutes at the end of the first phase of treatment. And this was about the same results in the CBT alone versus CBT combined with medication. There was no significant difference here. And in general, after the acute treatment phase, both treatment conditions, CBT alone and CBT plus medication, were both effective and equally effective. The only variable where there was a slight advantage for the combined approach was for total sleep time. People receiving, patients receiving the combined approach slept a little bit longer after the acute treatment phase compared to those who received CBT alone. In terms, uh, we can also classify or report outcome in terms of uh, uh, number or percentage of patients achieving a treatment response and the percentage of patients going into remission. So this is a little bit easier, I think, to follow. Again, after the acute treatment phase, 60% uh, 
in the CBT alone, and 61% achieved what we considered a treatment response. It doesn't mean they were good sleepers at the end, but they had made a significant improvement in their sleep. In terms of remission, it was 40% in the CBT alone and 44 in the combined approach. So we can see here that there was not much difference in terms of responders and remitters between CBT alone and combined with Zolpidem medication after the acute treatment phase. But I think the most interesting findings comes when we look at the extended treatment phase and the follow-up results. Uh, in general, people who received extended CBT improved more than those who received no additional treatment. So that was the first comparison for the extended treatment phase. And when we look at the second treatment arm, those who received combined treatment initially and then we split them in two separate groups, <clears throat> excuse me, those, those who continued with CBT alone, that is no Zolpidem during the extended phase, did better than those who continued with both CBT plus Zolpidem as needed. And if we look at the response and remission rates, uh, in terms of response rates, uh, it was uh, from 75 to 80% for those who continued with CBT alone versus approximately 70% for those who continued with both CBT and Zolpidem as needed. And similar rates, although lower, were obtained for the uh, percentage of uh, patients going into remission. So, so um, in a nutshell, this is the main results that were obtained uh, from this study. And um, what we can conclude uh, is that uh, CBT, when used alone or combined with medication, improves sleep continuity and reduces insomnia severity. The addition of medication to CBT during acute treatment provided a modest advantage, and it was mostly in preserving total sleep time. Whether we should see this increase of 10, 15, or 20 minutes as clinically significant or not remains unclear. The combined approach, on the other hand, seemed to enhance long-term outcome, but only when medication was discontinued after the initial short-term trial. So what this means essentially is if we combine both CBT with medication, I think that's okay and we may get a, a, an added value initially during the first few weeks of treatment, but more importantly, we have to discontinue, or it is preferable to discontinue the medication after those first five or six weeks. And probably the reason, the main reason to explain this is in terms of attribution of sleep improvements. If you treat patients with medication and CBT, there's a chance that patients may attribute their sleep improvements to the medication alone. Uh, so uh, probably that it's best to discontinue the medication while patients are still receiving CBT, and then they have more time to integrate uh, 
these uh, newly uh, learned skills. Uh, and I really didn't say anything about uh, CBT per se, but essentially what CBT entails, it's more than just education about sleep hygiene, like not drinking caffeine or stimulants. Uh, this has to do with changing poor sleep habits that perpetuate the sleep problem. And if you have one take-home message from this study, I think it would be that uh, the first strategy to use when, uh, when treating insomnia is to decrease the amount of time spent in bed because typically patients with insomnia will stay in bed longer than they should uh, and they do this in a misguided effort to, to get more sleep. Uh, so you should do the reverse and restrict the amount of time they spend in bed to the actual sleep time. So if a patient typically spends eight hours in bed but only sleeps six of those hours, you should cut down the amount of time spent in bed to those six hours, and then gradually you can increase back uh, the sleep window until an optimal sleep duration is reached. Uh, and ideally, you want to work with a sleep diary. Really a good way to engage uh, patients in their own treatment is to have them keep a sleep log from the beginning and throughout treatment. Um, so on this, uh, I will just conclude by saying that insomnia is a very significant public health problem. There are effective and safe therapeutic approaches that are available and it's possible to treat it in uh, in day-to-day -day clinical practice uh, despite the limited amount of time you may have with your patients. Uh, thank you very much and I'll be happy to answer or try to answer some of your questions. Great. Thank you, Dr. Mora. A very thorough overview of the general topic of insomnia and of your your paper. Uh, now we do want to turn to what the research suggests about changes in clinical practice, changes that clinicians and healthcare professionals might consider to incorporate these findings into their practice. So we will turn to uh, questions now and uh, comments or experiences that you might have had in this domain. Um, and I will ask Aaron uh, to give you instructions how to get in the queue. Thank you. If you'd like to ask a question, you may signal by pressing star, then one on your telephone keypad. If you're joining us on a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before pressing the corresponding digits. Again, that's star one to ask a question, and we'll pause to allow everyone an opportunity. And we do have a question. We'll hear first from Daughters of Charity Health System. Fantastic. If you, uh, when you're asking a question, if you could just introduce yourself and again your organization, that would be great. And where you're, uh, where you're from, where you're located. Sure. My name is Maura Smith. I'm calling from the Daughters of Charity Health System in California, and I just wanted to find out a little bit more um, about the cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, for example, if we were to, you know, implement this practice with our clinicians. Is it sufficient to have them just refer their patients to a therapist who does CBT, or is there, you know, specific uh, training or skills that the therapists need to have in sleep CBT for this treatment to be most effective? That's a very good question and a question we often get because we know that 
CBT has been shown to be effective, but it's not r- r- widely available, at least not yet, but we hope that it will become more available in the future. But to answer your question more specifically, which is, uh, can do we have to refer to a, a person who is specialized uh, in uh, behavioral sleep medicine, or can we do it ourselves? I think that there are some of these procedures that can be implemented by most clinicians and practice uh, and among those procedures are those uh, the one I mentioned earlier the one about sleep restriction in the paper also there we we uh, we um, uh, we state explicitly a number of recommendations you can make to patients about going to bed only when they're sleepy at bedtime. Uh, no need to go to bed at 9 o'clock just to make sure you'll be asleep by 11 or getting out of bed when unable to sleep, uh, maintaining a regular arising time in the morning and so on. I think these are very uh, specific behavioral procedures that can be implemented in most uh, clinical practice. Uh, there's also an educational component uh, that can be implemented easily in clinical practice. It's when we get to the C for cognitive therapy that it may require a bit more training because this involves actually changing people's beliefs that they entertain about what should be a good night's sleep uh, and uh, addressing also their fears and concerns about uh, daytime impairments. So this may require a bit more training, but there have been studies showing that nurses and nurse practitioners with one to two day training workshop can do an excellent job in implementing this kind of treatment. So I think that for the average patients with insomnia that uh, many clinicians without extensive training can treat uh, these patients. When there's an increasing degree of comorbidity, for instance, with mental disorders, major depression, and so on, then it might be preferable to refer to a sleep uh, specialist, uh, preferably a behavioral sleep medicine specialist, uh, which you may find in sleep disorders clinic, although not all sleep clinics have this kind of expertise, or you might also refer to uh, psychologists or psychiatrists who have been, or nurses who have been trained, or social workers who have been trained in the CBT, and there's an association called the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy based in New York that can provide referrals throughout North America for people who have this kind of expertise. Um, and in terms of, just a quick follow-up, in terms of um, getting nurses or, or even clinicians who are familiar with CBT but maybe not CBT in regards to sleep hygiene, um, do you have any recommendations for the type of, you know, two- or three-day educational courses that you mentioned? Or You probably need to check with, for instance, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Uh, periodically, they offer this course uh, the University of Rochester and now the University of Pennsylvania, they have major sleep centers there and they also offer these courses uh, periodically throughout the year. There's the School of Sleep Medicine also in California which may offer this uh, kind of training. But it's still quite limited, but now there's... uh, 
there's clearly more attention to this kind of approach, uh, and uh, I'm very confident that there will be more and more resources available in the near future. Really good questions, and on uh, page 2008 of the article uh, itself, um, uh, again, it's JAMA, May 20th, 2009, the, the page number is 2008, when they talk about the treatment groups, they do go through some of the details about CBT and uh, some of the recommendations in that regard, and uh, because Dr. Morin probably won't won't mention it himself, uh, I'll mention it for him. He does have a book that is available uh, called Insomnia, a Cl- Clinician's Guide to Assessment and Treatment. And I think that's from 2003, is that correct? That's right. Yep, uh, which has some really great information in it as well. And uh, So those are some other additional resources you can look to uh, on terms of details about CBT. Wonderful. Aaron? Yes, we'll hear next from Norwalk Hospital. Hi, Dr. Morin. Uh, my question was, in our sleep center where we treat a lot of patients with insomnia, I think you had mentioned earlier that the percentage of patients that were in your study who had a pre-existing psychiatric disorder like uh, depression or anxiety was about 15%, if I heard that correctly. And I would say that our percentage is much higher than that, probably over 50%. My question was, did you analyze those patients separately, and were they more or less resistant to treatment in this way? That's a very good question also, and you're right that the rate of psychiatric comorbidity was probably lower in this study, although we wanted to be as liberal as possible to to include as many of those people. I guess in the context of a research study, we're always a bit more exclusive, and the figures you, you mentioned, 40 to 50%, that's about the typical rate of psychiatric comorbidity, and the big question, I mean, before we used to to just focus on primary insomnia, but now clearly there are more studies looking at comorbid insomnia, whether it's with uh, depression, chronic pain, or so on. Clearly, the evidence now shows that CBT works also very well for insomnia associated with those other conditions. In this particular study, we did not look at the treatment response of those with comorbid medical or psychiatric condition, but this is in our plan. This is the first paper coming out of a study that took us almost five years to complete, So, but and it's a single center study, but definitely we will do that. But I would say that we used to think that when a patient had insomnia with depression that we only needed to treat the depression and the insomnia would go away. But now there's increasing evidence that's not the case, uh, that insomnia and fatigue are actually the most common residual symptoms in otherwise successfully treated patients with major depression. So now there's a shift in paradigm, as you probably know, that whenever a patient presents with insomnia comorbid with depression or with chronic pain or with another condition, we should treat those two conditions directly and never assume that if we treat the so-called underlying condition that the insomnia will resolve because that's not the case. And there are at least a couple papers in the last two years, uh, including one in the journal Sleep by Rachel Member, 
that has shown that uh, treatment, CBT and medication focusing on both major depression and sleep uh, will produce much better outcome uh, than if you have a treatment that focus on the depression alone. Thank you very much. Really good question. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges I think we have, uh, Charles, is that there's been such a huge expansion of sleep centers, uh, most of which I think are focusing on just doing sleep studies for uh, for sleep apnea, that I don't know who has what expertise in this regard. And so in some sense, there's a lack of trust that they have this kind of expertise because they seem to be so focused on on uh, on doing sleep studies. I, I assume it's our role just to Call up, call up the clinicians who run those and try to figure out what expertise they do have. Do you have any any thoughts about that? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that uh, I mean the, there's a tremendous number of uh, sleep centers, and unfortunately, most of them focus on sleep apnea and sleep studies, and it's very hard to get a sleep study approved for insomnia. And typically, we don't recommend a sleep study if uh, the primary complaint is insomnia. Actually, it's a diagnosis that's made based on the clinical evaluation and made based on the subjective reports of the patients. But if at some point we need to to get to a sleep clinic, we should ask, particularly for patients with insomnia, whether there's anyone on staff with the expertise not only to evaluate insomnia but to treat it also because there are sleep centers that may say, yes, we can do that, but they will do the evaluation and then refer you back with some recommendation. That may do it, but uh, I think that in, in a, a fairly large percentage of patients, we need to, we need to have expertise not, in the, not just in the evaluation, but also in the management. And uh, oftentimes when we are at that level, patients have already been tried on a number of medications, and we may even need expertise to get them off the medication. And this will require a few follow-ups. We can't treat insomnia in a single visit. Right, and due to, I think, the magnitude, the prevalence of the problem, it makes sense to try to build as much of that expertise within the primary care uh, practices as we can. Uh, next question, Aaron. We have our next question. will come from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Great. Hi, I'm Tom Kowalski, the Clinical Pharmacy Director at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, and uh, two questions, but just first, uh, we just started an uh, online CBT program with uh, Sleep Coach, and I was wondering if you had any uh, experience between an online CBT program versus somebody actually going in and getting, you know, with a face-to-face visits. And secondly, um, is there an appropriate time for somebody who's been on chronic sedative hypnotics to actually start to work with them? and get them into CBT and try to wean them off of these products? Very good question again. So the the first one has to do with availability of treatment. How can we best, how can we better disseminate the knowledge we have? I think that's a very good way of doing it, to provide the online treatment. Just in the last three months, uh, two very, very good papers have come out in the literature. This past, actually this month in the Archives of General Psychiatry, a group from Virginia uh, published a paper on the use of uh, CBT, uh, internet-based uh, treatment for, for insomnia. And earlier, uh, I think in the spring in the Journal of Sleep, another paper coming out of Canada from Winnipeg also doing a similar study. 
So I think that, uh, in general, yes, whatever we can do to uh, disseminate uh, treatment to those who need it, uh, we should do it. But, and there's a but there, I think we have to be careful that these uh, self-help type of approaches uh, can work very well for patients who are very motivated. Uh, We know to begin with, to do CBT, it does require a fair amount of motivation. That's a bit more time-consuming than just taking a sleep medication. So if people are going to do it on their own, whether it's online uh, or whether it's uh, with a self-help book uh, or with other types of uh, medium, I think we have to be careful and um, uh, there should probably be some type of initial uh, screening of the patient uh, because uh, if they have to make self-diagnosis, it's more of a risky business there. So I think that initially we have to make sure that uh, the di- the, we have a proper diagnosis. After that, I think this would be certainly sort of a, the second-line approach in the, sk- in the stepped care model, and we can do that. Uh, uh, but uh, we have to keep in mind it's not for everyone, and with the more complex cases, uh, I think that uh, a therapist-guided type of intervention may be required. Uh, so that's a, for the first uh, question. For the second one, um, and uh, I would just add also, we have to be careful. There are so many uh, uh, websites with all sorts of information about sleep uh, that... Uh, We have to do some triage there and make sure that whatever is available is uh, truly CBT. CBT is becoming sort of a a trademark, and uh, we see it used in many different places. And uh, clearly telling people to stop drinking caffeine at bedtime is not CBT. So it has to be more than that. When should we consider providing CBT to those who have made chronic use of sedative hypnotics? That's a very difficult question. I think that there's increasing evidence now that some FDA-approved hypnotics can be used long-term, and the newer medication uh, no longer have a a time restriction on their use. Uh, But uh, I think that when people have used medication for more than a few weeks or a few months, if they still have insomnia, obviously this is not working, so we should consider taking them off the medication. And the question is not whether we should add a second, a third, or a fourth medication because oftentimes when we see them, at least in sleep clinics, they've already been on all sorts of medication. So it's really to give them a chance uh, to try it without medication and provide them uh, a very structured uh, CBT approach. Uh, so the, the time frame may vary from some people to, to some people. but And I guess that there are people who do well in medication, long-term medication, and we don't see them in specialized uh, sleep clinics. But again, when you've renewed the prescription more than two or three times, I think that we have to offer all the other treatment options available. Tom, really great question and uh, lots of follow-up questions that could come out of that. Another one based on your paper, perhaps, Charles, is the issue about the effectiveness of group versus individual CBT. Yes, uh, very interesting. I think that uh, 
the there there are great advantages uh, to doing uh, group therapy. Uh, you may need a bit more expertise uh, to lead the group than if you're doing it individually. But uh, in Scotland, uh, there have been studies uh, by Colin Espy using nurse practitioners to lead a small group, five or six people, uh, and this works very well. We've done the same here in Quebec City, and I think that's a very good way to get people engaged in the treatment. Uh, and also, also to, stay, to stay more focused on sleep. If you do individual therapy, uh, clearly, uh, patients will take you in many different directions depending on what they went through in the previous week. When you do group therapy, it's a bit easier to, to stay focused. But at the same time, you may need to be a bit more selective in who you include in your group. If you have some patients with major psychiatric disorders or personality disorders, it may disrupt the group process, but by and large, uh, group therapy is almost as effective as individual therapy and certainly more cost-effective. Erin, next question. Great, and once again, that is star one to signal. We'll hear from East Orange General Hospital. Hi, um, this is uh, Ryan Fields from East Orange General Hospital. Uh, my question relates to uh, what was previously discussed, so you may have already answered my question. But uh, in reference to cognitive behavioral therapy, which uh, specific uh, CBT interventions are most successful in decreasing the specific amount of time spent in bed? Um, I know you have mentioned the sleep diary and you know the comparison between group and individual therapy. So, you mean in decreasing the amount of time spent awake at night? Uh, because that's what we recommend. I mean, yeah. if if we take a typical example, a patient who comes to to me and then he's kept a sleep diary for a week before, and then we look at the diary. On average, he spent maybe eight hours, maybe eight and a half per night in bed, but at the end, he averaged maybe no more than six hours of sleep per night. So that leaves a couple hours of wakefulness somewhere in the night. So my first recommendation would be, well, in the in the coming week, and we take that one week at a time, no, no need to plan for the next six months, one week at a time. So in the next week, what I'd like you to do, typically you've gone to bed at 10 o'clock. I'd like you to postpone that to at least 11 o'clock, and if you can, 11.30. And in the morning, instead of arising at 6, I'd like you to set the alarm clock and arise at 5 a.m. So here we're compressing the sleep window. And in doing that, uh, we may produce a mild sleep deprivation, but more importantly, we change the focus of the patients. Instead of wondering, well, what am I going to do to fall asleep tonight? Uh, I really need to get to sleep tonight. I have so much to do tomorrow. When you ask him to postpone bedtime, the question will be, well, what am I going to do to stay awake until the prescribed bedtime for the upcoming week? So it changes the focus of their attention. It produces a paradox, and by the same token, it reduces their performance anxiety about falling asleep. So this is really the best one strategy you can use in most clinical practice. It's easier said than done, you'll say, but you have to engage the patient in the therapy. You have to ask them to do and to question later. And so this is the first step. And gradually you would adjust that sleep window 
based on the sleep efficiency. That's why the sleep diary is very important because you compute the sleep efficiency. It's a simple ratio of time asleep divided by time in bed. So six hours of sleep on eight spent in bed, that's a sleep efficiency of uh, 75%. You're aiming for a sleep efficiency of 85 or 90%. When you reach that criterion, then you add 15 or 20 minutes to the sleep window until you've reached an optimal sleep duration. So that's the first recommendation. But then in the paper, you'll find other recommendations that you can add to that. And very simple education uh, about uh, how much sleep a person needs. Uh, People often believe that they absolutely need eight hours per night, uh, but it's best to get six and a half or seven of uninterrupted sleep than eight hours of broken sleep. So this basic education about sleep needs can be very helpful to decrease anxiety about not getting the proper amount of sleep. But when you do sleep restriction, and I will close on this, when you do sleep restriction, never restrict time in bed to less than five hours per night, no matter how much sleep patients are telling you they get. Below five hours, you might produce excessive daytime sleepiness, and you don't want your patient to fall asleep at the will. Thank you. Good conversation. Really good conversation. And there, are, there are there is some information about the sleep diary uh, in the paper. Uh, Dr. Marin, is there a place that we can go to, or perhaps an internet internet site where you can get a standard sleep diary to see what that looks like? On the National Sleep Foundation website, I think you can find a sleep diary there. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can. And it's a fairly standard diary that you can adapt uh, in your own clinical practice. Uh, Very critical. The Insomnia Severity Index is another, uh, I mentioned this instrument that we use in this paper, a seven-item scale that uh, you can also use to assess your patient uh, before and after treatment or throughout the course of treatment. And it's also available if you do a Google search, you'll be able to find it. There's a very simple uh, guidelines for interpretation. Uh, a score of 14 and above uh, suggests uh, significant insomnia. Seven or below, there's no insomnia. And eight to 13, it's sub-threshold. So it's a good way to assess your patient as you implement treatment. Uh, I, I fear we're going to run out of time, and that we could we could go on for a couple of hours. I'm sure I could because I have a lot of questions for you. Let's take one more, and then uh, and then what I'd like to summarize with is what are your recommenda- recommendations in particular for primary care because it's such an important topic or subject for primary care practices in terms and uh, of what you would recommend the average primary care practice do to improve their performance around insomnia. So, Aaron, let's take one more question, and we'll end with that summary. It looks like our last caller has removed themselves from the queue, so we have no questions lined up right at this moment. Again, that is star one if you would like to signal. Great. So, Charles, let's talk a little bit about that. So, uh, I'm here in uh, Portland, Oregon. We're a nine-physician, two-site practice, pretty pretty standard. Uh, deal with insomnia day in and day out. I'm sure I pre- prescribed uh, too much Zolpidem for uh, for the insomnia, um, and people are on it uh, for longer periods of time than they should. Uh, tell me what what are your recommendations in our practice does to uh, what system should we put in place to improve our performance? Well, I know that time is of the essence, and this is a big barrier to treatment to treating insomnia. 
but uh, insom- I, I often view insomnia a little bit as chronic pain. Uh, it does take time. We need to do a good assessment initially, of, uh, and once you've come up to a diagnosis, uh, then uh, before you initiate treatment, engage the patient uh, in this process. Uh, have him keep a diary, and then if you make some, reg- I mean, using medication is fine for acute insomnia, and uh, you don't, sh- you shouldn't feel bad about this. But then there needs to be follow-up. Uh, we can't just tell patients come back to see me in three months. There has to be some regular follow-ups. If you prescribe medication, then make sure that you offer the other treatment options as well. And then we, when we say CBT, particularly the B for behavioral recommendation, you can as easily make a behavioral prescription as writing a prescription for sleep medication. But again, it's easier done than said, so follow-up is essential. But there are some very simple instructions, uh, recommendations you can make to your patient. And one treatment does not preclude the other. If you combine both, that's fine. But keep in mind that after a few weeks, patients need to 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 integrate what they have learned. And in the long run, uh, I think they'll have to rely on their own skills to deal with the insomnia. And medication should be seen as a rescue therapy. Right. So I think that one of the take-homes I think I have is to really read more about CBT, uh, try to get it into a digestible form that I can work with my partners on uh, to educate us collectively, and then begin working on that as a primary intervention uh, when we have somebody with insomnia uh, and uh, with appropriate follow-up that really just focuses on the insomnia itself. We we tend to do follow-up visits that are very complicated. You're trying to deal with too many things at one time, and that certainly doesn't help. Uh, makes it easy to just throw medications at things as opposed to spend time talking about them. And so I think those are a couple of key lessons that I learned from you. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Anything else from your perspective? We're just about out of time. Erin, uh, are there any calls in the queue? We have no callers in the queue. Great. Well, uh, Charles, it's been a delightful call. I've learned a lot. I think there's a lot more to learn. I have a lot of improvement to do in my own practice. I'm sure the participants got a lot of, out of it as well. Uh, it's wonderful having you on the call today. So thank you for your participation. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific Time. Our next discussion will take place on Wednesday, August 19th. The article has been chosen but has not yet been released. Please pay attention to uh, JAMA, the print version or the website, uh, for the notification about that particular article. Uh, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It's an interactive conference called Designed to Accelerate Changes that Can Improve Clinical Care. Thank you for being a part of today's call. Good day.